Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and impact us with His Word. If you'd like the Lord to impact you with His Word today, just lift one hand. You can lift the other one. Let's pray. Father, we have come here to meet with you. We've come here to have you deal with our hearts. We've come here to hear your voice. We are your sheep and you do speak to us. We pray that now you would be the teacher through your Holy Spirit and that you would impact every person. Lord, I pray that no person would escape here without you impacting their heart with your word by your spirit. We invite you to come. We say, come Holy Spirit, have your way in this place this morning. Speak your heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, as you know, Jeremiah, last week, if you were here, started speaking on abortion. Um, there's some topics that are difficult to talk about, right? Some truth we'd rather not know about, not hear. When I was uh, recently in the hospital having open-heart surgery, when I first went into the hospital, I was in my room, and the first guy that I met from there was the chaplain of the hospital, and he came up and introduced himself and said, I'm the chaplain. Can I pray for you about anything? And um, he just started talking with me. He said, you know, I have a lot of heart patients in this hospital. And um, he said, about a few months ago, they let me come into the OR and watch an open-heart surgery. He said, it's an amazing thing. When they take out that saw, it's like a circular saw, and when they cut your sternum, it throws a cloud of dust up in the air. I'm like, wait a minute. I haven't had that surgery yet. <laughs> what you say may be true, but that's, that's not what I want to talk about right now. It's not dust. It's bone dust flying up in the air. I'm like, dude, wait. Too much information right now. Wait until I'm done with the surgery, then we can talk about the dust flying up in the air. So sometimes there's issues that we'd rather not talk about. I think in the church, abortion is one of those. Um, I'm thankful that Jeremiah brought this up. You know, that prophetic gifting on him is an awakening thing, bringing things back to the forefront. And we were all down here at the altar just saying, Lord, what can I do? Um, I'm thankful for that because um, this isn't my first go around. A lot of us who are a little bit older, have been through waves of um, stirring in our lives about the whole abortion issue. I know in the 80s, um, the church that I was heavily involved with then, we were, there was just a lot of stirring, a lot of passion, a lot of prayer. We were involved with a lot of things. We were supporting the Crisis Pregnancy Center that is now options for women and uh, raising money for them and, and doing all kinds of things. And um, Actually, I, um, this is true confessions from one of the elders here. I was arrested twice uh, in abortion protests for doing what we called back in those, those days a rescue, where we would go and we would actually pile up against the door on the days they did abortions and um, to blockade the door so women couldn't go in to have abortions. And I know to a lot of people that's a, maybe offensive. You think that's not right. It's against the law and all that stuff. I get that, but I guess the question is, when the realization strikes you, 
of what happens inside there. Maybe you rethink some of those issues, but for me, I did, and um, the Lord did some powerful things through that. Um, I saw lots of craziness in the different protests that I went to all over the state of Florida for quite a while. Um, there's a lot of passion about the issue on both sides. There's a lot of spiritual warfare that goes on, and um, I've had people jump out of their cars and run up screaming and start hitting me uh, when we're walking. Um, I've had people jump out of their cars and take a cup of beer and throw it in my face. Um, I had a buddy of mine right here at the abortion clinic in Lakeland who was a couple got out of their vehicle to go in, the guy and the girl, and he engaged them in conversation just about the gospel and about the Lord. And the guy pulls a gun out and puts it to his head. And my friend said, go ahead, I'm ready. Um, but he got to talk to them about the Lord. So I know there's lots of passion that stirs up. For me, um, this stirring, I'm going to continue on this because I know Jeremiah is going to talk about it again next week. And so I wanted to kind of have a continuum. There's lots of external things that we can do as believers and as a church, and I think, I think they're good. Um, uh, totally for supporting options for women, all of that's great. What I'd like to do today is to talk about the spiritual aspect of what I think is the most effective way that we can combat abortion in our culture. Just, you, you just have to understand, this is, this is an issue that has been here since before 1973 when Roe v. Wade was, that decision from the Supreme Court came down. What Roe v. Wade did, and I'm sure Jeremiah's going to talk about this more next week, is it just nullified state restrictions on abortion. Um, but there were already states that had abortion in place. Um, so if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the Supreme Court, if we get another conservative justice on there and that, that ever happens, um, only the Lord knows, the battle isn't over. It'll just be on 50 state levels then. So this is a long-term battle. So we're, what we're talking about here, when you're talking about cultural issues like this, this is not a short-term fix where in a week's time we're going to have abortions going to be overturned and it's going to be outlawed. That, that's not going to happen like that. This is a, a long-term war that we're in. This is part of the cultural war that we're in. And so let's just think through what is the best and most effective way for us as believers to affect change and to connect with God's heart. Let me read you a quote from Oswald Chambers that I love very much. The subject of intercessory prayer is weakened by the neglect of the idea with which we ought to start. We think that prayer is the preparation for the work, but prayer is the work. We scarcely believe what the Bible reveals, that prayer is God's chosen way of working. We lean into our own understanding or we trust in our outward service and do away with prayer. And consequently, by succeeding in the external, we fail in the eternal because in the eternal, we succeed only by prevailing prayer. So, we can do lots of things externally. At the end of the day, God has to change hearts one at a time. It happens by the Holy Spirit. So the title of my message today is How God Fights His Battles. And the subtitle is The Most Important Weapon in the Abortion Battle. 
I believe with all my heart it's the prayers of God's people. So when you're talking about a long-term fix, when you're talking about an issue that you have to pray over and over again about, we call this prevailing prayer in the church, right? There's crickets in here now. Prayer and evangelism are the two subjects you can preach on, and you're going to have crickets the whole time. So um, if we want to affect, here's, here's, here's my premise. If we want to affect the abortion issue in our nation and in the world, it's going to come by spiritual means, not by external natural means. There's got to be a power because we're dealing with spiritual power here. So let's talk about this whole issue of prevailing prayer. In order for us to prevail, how many have had issues in your life where it's taken years? Like maybe you have a wayward relative that hasn't come to know the Lord and you're praying. This is called prevailing prayer. You don't just pray one prayer and you go, okay, it's all, it's all finished now. I know that that does happen. But this is prevailing prayer. The thing that helps, uh, the, the, the way that we win in prevailing prayer, we have to have a few things um, that happened to us. First, we have to have a real sense of the need and the urgency of the hour and of the need itself. So I think we got some of that last week. We came up to the altar. Everybody basically in the church was up here at the altar. There were people up here crying. We're up here. Am I, what am I, what, you know, who's going to do something about this? And we're all like, yes, we're all going to. We felt that sense of urgency. That's one thing you have to have for prevailing prayer. The second thing is you have to connect to the heart of God about that issue. It has to move you deeper than just an altar call from a prophetic voice that is sent for awakening. You know, I, I love Jeremiah with all my heart, and I love the prophetic gift in his life. But I tell him sometimes, I said, bro, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's a gift. But, like, you could stand up front and say, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, and give an altar call, and everybody would come down. That, that's the way that prophetic awakening gift is. An altar call for what? You know, I'm, so we're just being honest here. We're, we're good friends, and we're, we're fellow elders. I said, dude, what you preached, like, that wasn't that compelling for everybody to come down to the altar. Your message wasn't that good. Like, that's just a gift. That's the Holy Spirit drawing people. This is, I'm telling you, this is the prophetic gifting. We can all have that. But if we really, okay, so here's the deal. Last week we get stirred up. We come down here, and the issue is, do we really, are we in it for the long haul or are we not? Are we just going to come down and go, oh, we had a sermon about abortion. Now we, we did that. We did that. Been there, done that. This is the question that God asks us all the time. Just because I prayed for my lost brother and I was stirred about it for two months, he's like... It's not over yet. You've got to keep prevailing. So we have to have a sense of the urgency. We have to connect with the heart of God, which some of that, 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 that's painful. When it comes to the issue of abortion, looking at what's actually happened, that is painful to your heart. Going, This is craziness. These babies are being dismembered. But the third thing that we have to have, which is what I want to talk about today, is we have to have a sense of hope and confidence that when we're praying, something is happening. It's doing something. It matters. It makes a difference. That's why there's so many exhortations in the Scripture 
Persevere in prayer, right? Be devoted to prayer, right? Those kinds of things. Day and night. Here's Jesus told them a parable in Luke 18 that they should always pray and not faint and not give up. Can I tell you, this issue of abortion, if we're serious about it, if we're just playing church and we just want to go down and get moved emotionally and raise our hand, that's one thing. But we have to decide if that's what we're doing or not. Or do we want to have the maximum impact on this issue of abortion? It stirs me. I'm still like, I feel like I'm reawakened after 30 years when there was such a heavy stirring about it. The Lord bringing that wave back around again, and he wants to ask us, is this, are you good with this? Is this okay? Do you want to just come down to the altar, raise your hand, get stirred emotionally, or do you actually want to make an eternal difference? That's the question. So we have to answer that. This is war. There's many battles ahead. There's progress that's been made, can I tell you? There is a lot of progress that's been made. You, so, so we sit out here and we go, yeah, I mean, there's been people and believers that have been crying out to the Lord, fasting and praying for decades. That's true. Honestly, when Roe v. Wade was first passed in 73, the church was largely asleep. In the 80s, right before I was stirred up about it by the Lord, most Christians that I talked to didn't even know if abortion was right or wrong. They just didn't know. From a scripture perspective, they're like, I I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I had these conversations with believers that love Jesus with all their heart. Is it wrong or is it not? Well, that has to be the first thing that's settled. Are we awakened to it? But the battle continues. There's been the Lou Ingalls that have fasted and prayed for decades over this and lots of other people. You go, well, it's still here. But I want to tell you that it would be infinitely worse if the church hadn't stood up. There's crisis pregnancy centers. There's churches that have saved tens of thousands of babies. When I was in one of the, we call them rescues back in the day, I know some people like this tweaks them. They're like, you, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, it's really okay. This is conviction I had before the Lord. We paid a little bit of a price for it. There was a little bit of a sacrifice. So I was on probation. I had to do 200 hours of community service and pay a few thousand dollars in probation and court costs and walk through that whole thing. But we had a trial in in Tampa because we did this rescue in St. Petersburg, and there was 153 of us arrested. You say, what were you arrested for? We were arrested for trespassing and resisting arrest without violence. So what happened is you're up there against the door. We had guys that were there that locked their head to the door with motorcycle locks. So they had to have locksmiths come out there. And it took them two hours. Those motorcycle locks are hard to get off. It took them like two hours to get their head out of the lock because they didn't want to hurt somebody and then get sued. You, you get that. Um, and we would sit there and they would tell us, you, you can't be here. You're trespassing. You need to get off. And we'd say... Thank you, Jesus. We're just here for you. And they would come, and they would literally drag you. They, they grabbed my belt twice and dragged me across the parking lot, threw me in the back of the van, and then they take you down to the police station. And in our case, they booked us in the Civic Center in both places, in Tampa and in Lakeland. Um, they took us to the Civic Center. That's where we had our trial. In, in Tampa, we had our trial in the Civic Center in one of the theaters there. There was 153 defendants. Um, 
so it was, it was pretty, it was actually a very powerful time. Most of us that were in those um, court proceedings said, this is better than any church we've ever been in in our life. God moved powerfully here. There was a girl there. This is what I'm saying. There was a girl there that was part of our rescue. She was, I don't know, just under 20, maybe late teens. She gave her testimony on the witness stand about how her mother, when she was pregnant with her, had gone to that very abortion clinic to kill her. And there was a Christian lady who felt like the Lord prompted her, I want you to go down to the clinic today. I've got a mission and a, uh, an assignment for you. And she talked to that mother and she talked her out of killing her baby. And here that girl, years later, is part of the rescue. And so she's on the stand testifying, I wouldn't even be alive today if somebody hadn't have reached out and taken the step. And during that proceeding, I watched the stenographer who's taken the, the notes of the court. She's bawling. Her makeup is running down her face and her neck. The, lead, the head juror on that jury, many times during the trial, covered up his face like that, and he's wiping his eyes. The Spirit of God came in, and he was changing and convicting hearts. Don't think the judge wasn't affected. Don't think the bailiff wasn't affected. Don't think there was not multitudes of people that were affected by that. You go, was it worth it? I mean, the, the question is, how much is a life worth? Is, is it worth it if one baby's saved? Is it worth it? Here's, here's the premise, okay? When we pray and God's in a battle, He does stuff. It might be behind the scenes. It might be hidden from us. God is always doing a thousand things when we pray. We might only see three of them. Or none. But the assurance in Scripture is this. If you ask me and you pray in trusting in me, I will do something and move. In the church, can I just say it? This is truth. We've lost a lot of our edge because we've lost our faith in the power of prayer. We come and pray a lot of times as a duty, but like we're not in there with excitement so much. I mean, if you're, if you're the exception here, praise God for you. God, I can't wait to pray. I know you're going to do something. You promised. Have you been awed and amazed by the staggering promises that God has made about prayer and his word recently? If you ask, who said this? Anything in my name, I'll do it. Anything you ask in prayer believing, I'll do it. I'll do it. The same Son of God who purchased your salvation, who said, come to me all you who are weary, said these things. They're powerful. I've got three points I want to give to you. I'll try to keep in the bounds of time. Romans chapter 15, if you turn there. Romans 15, there's two verses I'm going to look at. This is the way God fights his battles. 
He engages the hearts of his people and he has them stirred to the point where they're going to prevail in prayer and stick with it. And then he moves and changes circumstances and changes hearts and changes lives. Romans 15 verse 30. I find this um, whole principle kind of amazing. Romans 15 30. Here's Paul toward the end of Romans. He says, now I urge you brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Okay, so, so please notice, he's urging them. You follow me? This is important. This is a big issue. He's urging them to strive together with him in prayer. One scholar says this word, strive together, which is a single word in Greek. Here's the word. Suna agonizomai. You hear the word agony in there? It's the word for wrestling and fighting. This is what one Greek scholar said that that word means. Strive together to fight in company with, assist or help to fight. Wrestling together against the powers of darkness. That's what it means. We're wrestling together. Question question for you. Why didn't Paul, who had the revelation of Jesus Christ, maybe on a higher level than anybody who's ever lived, he was caught up to the third heaven. He heard his gospel directly from the mouth of Jesus, right? That's a lot of authority. He understood who we are in Christ. Can you say amen? If anybody understood who we are in Christ, it's Paul. If anybody understood our position in Christ, it's Paul. If anybody understood righteousness and right standing before God, it's Paul. Here's my question. Here's my question. Since Paul over and over again, at least eight times in his letters, asked and urged the saints of God to please pray for me. I need you to pray for me. Why didn't he just pray for himself? Why didn't he just pray for himself? Wouldn't God have heard his prayers? If it was just down to the individual praying, why did he constantly ask for prayer? That the gospel might go forth. He's praying for things that he knows are the will of God and that are the purpose of God, right? That the gospel go forth. I need you guys to help me and to pray with me that I'll speak boldly, that the gospel will go forth, that the word of God will prosper. Why does he have to have the prayers of the other saints? Why can't he just pray himself? Here's the revelation in in the New Testament to me that very often we miss. So in a church, we're like, Barry's got to have open-hearted surgery. And we're like, let the prayer warriors handle it. We've got a dire financial need. Let the prayer warriors handle it. They've got it. We've got this situation. Let the prayer warriors handle it. Here's the revelation in the New Testament, okay? You can look it up later, but Ephesians chapter 1. This is the revelation, and this is why. I'm explaining why here. Revelation 1 talks about how Jesus, when God raised him from the dead, he raised him high above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that's named, not only in this world, but in the world to come, right? 
And then he says at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, this is remarkable, this is why we all have to put in our supply. He says, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the revelation of that? The authority of Jesus Christ that the God the Father gave to him, which is over everything. He gave it and dispersed it throughout his body. So why would Paul say, I need the prayers of all of the churches and all the saints? Because numbers matter. Because everyone sitting in this room, you have a deposit from the Lord Jesus Christ of his authority in your life. And no one else has what you have. So you go, if there's just five prayer warriors, that's not nearly as good as 500. If we've got five out of 100, we only have 5% of that dispersion of authority from the Lord Jesus Christ when he raised from the dead. Your prayer matters. Your supply matters. Every believer has a supply of the authority of Jesus Christ to ask him to do his will and for things to happen. The question is, are we going to abdicate and say, yeah, the prayer warriors, they've got it. Can I urge you? Can I plead with you? Put in your supply. We need it. There is power in numbers. When you're fighting a war, that's what we're fighting. There's power in numbers. Everybody has an impartation who's in Jesus Christ of his authority. We have to put our supply in. Can I urge you to take that seriously before the Lord? Like your prayer, the weakest saint, Paul's asking the whole church in Rome. How many know that there were probably people when that letter arrived who had just gotten saved? The weakest believer in Jesus Christ has a supply and has an impartation of his authority to pray and ask God to do things that move the hand of heaven. The weakest believer does. It's not, oh yeah, after I've studied, you know, when I first got saved, I, I read books on prayer because I thought that would make me pray. Didn't work out that way. I, I read all VM Bounds books. I've read, they're great, but I thought now I've got a prayer life because I'm reading these books. And the Lord's like, why don't you just pray? Why don't you just pray? The way you learn how to pray is to pray, okay? That's the way you learn how to pray. You can get inspiration and information from books that you can use as ammunition, but the way you learn how to pray is just to do it. It's, this, is, this is the message of heaven through Nike. Just do it. Okay, so Paul is urging them to strive in the battle with him. Romans 15 here. He's asking two different things. So let's look at the request that he asked for because I want to follow this. And, and my first point is that when we pray, God is always working behind the scenes. Even though he's doing a hundred things and you can only see one or two or three, we have to be assured that when we pray, he's working, he's doing things. I want to show you, this is just a great example in Paul's life. So here's, he, he's asked for two things. 
The first thing he asked for in verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Now what Paul's talking about here is he stirred up a lot of trouble in the church. Paul preached to the Gentiles. He preached that Gentiles could be saved and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he taught the Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to do that anymore. Now you come directly through Christ Jesus. And there were thousands and thousands of Jewish believers who had come to Christ who were very angry with him for that because they believed that he was um, going against and resisting God's law and God's ways. So he had a lot of enemies, and um, there was a lot of animosity there. The second thing that he prays in verse 31 is that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So I'm just giving you a little background. How many are okay with a little teaching every now and then where you got a few details to remember? All right, there's one. Praise God. That's, oh, that's my wife. Um, it's good to have the support of your wife. Praise God. Um, so Paul's taking up an offering because there's famine in Jerusalem and in Judea. So he's trying to raise money to help bring to Jerusalem for the relief of the saints in, you know, the drought. And they're, they're, they're hungry. They don't have enough food. So he's raising money throughout Achaia, Macedonia, and he's going to bring it there to them. But he's like, is this going to cause strife in the church because I'm a really controversial figure? So those are the two requests. And I want to look at the book of Acts to see, because he asked the church at Rome if they would pray for those two things. So turn to Acts chapter 21. Just follow me here. Let's chase this down a little bit in the book of Acts, because this is super cool. Acts 21, remember, his first request is that God would rescue him from the angry Jews, okay? Acts 21, verse 27 when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him, that's Paul in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. He's probably wondering at this time, is the church in Rome praying? They're 1,300 miles away from Jerusalem, but are they praying? I asked. I asked them if they would pray for me, urged them. They crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and um, the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which wasn't true. Then all the city was provoked. And the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And the first part of verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him. Do you think that he might have been thinking in his mind, are there saints in Rome praying for me? This isn't looking like God's answering prayer. Then, verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort, cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 
At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So somebody sent a messenger up to the commander to tell him, look, there's a big ruckus down there. You better get some guys down there and stop this violence. Coincidence or not? Then the commander came up, verse 33, and took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with two chains, and began to ask who he was and what he'd done. But among the crowd, there were some shouting one thing and some another, and they could not find out what the facts were because of the uproar, and he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So he was out of harm's way. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! He stirred up a lot of trouble wherever he went. Paul did. So the report came to the commander. That's rescue number one. He's rescued from them because they were trying to kill him, right? Is that what the scripture says? Then look at chapter 23. There's a second rescue, verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day... The Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we've bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we've killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near to the place. So they've got this plot going on, unbeknownst to anybody else except God. Verse 16, But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand. So how old do you suppose this boy was? You don't take a 21-year-old by the hand and go, come here and tell me your story. He's a little kid, right? He's maybe 9, 10 years old, we're thinking, okay? So he takes him by the hand. Come here, son. Don't be afraid. Tell me your story. So he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him, and now they're ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Miracle number one, this little boy was in the right place at the right time to hear the right thing to tell to the commander. That was really a coincidence, wasn't it, Lord? Maybe it was the Romans who were praying for Paul that God would rescue him. This is the second time now that God's going to rescue him. I, I think about the story, and I think, how did that look? You know, they're obviously they're holed up in some kind of room having this secret meeting, right? So I'm thinking to myself, how does this little boy get down there where there's these guys making this plot? And I'm wondering, God, maybe you had a little lizard and you, 
had that little lizard running around, and he's following that lizard. I, I don't know. How did he do it? I don't know. I know people prayed, though. I know God did the impossible, and he invaded, and he answered prayer because there was a group of people in the church that were praying and asking him. We may not see the hundred things that God's doing. We might only see one. Here's this boy. He comes and tells the commander. Here's the second miracle to me. Verse 23. And he called to him, this is the commander, two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So you've got 470 soldiers with their horses tied up by this guy. Here's a miracle to me. You believe the story of a little boy and you're committing almost 500 of your soldiers to go down there and deal with the issue. You must have believed him or you're going to look like a total fool. You imagine the centurion's boss. Dude, what did you do sending all those horsemen and soldiers down there? What was going on? Well, I had a little boy tell us that there was going to be some violence. I don't think so. I think God convinced the commander. He's telling the truth, and you need to do something about it. Those are miracles to me. Um, and then that's, that's, that's answer one. Paul prayed. He asked them to pray for him that he would be rescued, right? Was he rescued? Was he rescued? Twice at least he was rescued, okay, from them. And they were going to kill him, right? Twice. They took him in hand. They were beating him. They were going to kill him the first time. Second time, they made a vow that they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed him. There's a lot of, there's 40 really hungry Jews. So that was the first request that Paul made. The second one was that there would, he would be well-received by the saints, that there would be peace and there would be love and harmony between the believers there. So look at chapter 21. Just flip back there. I just want to chase this for a minute. We're almost done with this part. Okay, here's the, here's the point. When we pray, God does things. Even if we can't see them, He's doing things behind the scenes. Okay, verse, um, chapter 21 of Acts, verse 17 says, After we arrived in Jerusalem... The brethren received us, what does it say? Gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they began saying. What did they begin doing? Glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come here. So here's, here's the miracle of the peace. First of all, the brothers receive them. They hear the reports of his ministry. They're all rejoicing and glorifying God, seeing God's hand in it. And then they come up with this plan of wisdom to help to keep peace among the Gentile and the Jewish people in the church. So take them, 
He, he, you know, they talk, you can follow this through verses 24 to 26. They, they basically say, take these, these guys that are under a vow, take them into the temple, and you're going to show that you actually honor and believe in the law of Moses. This was wisdom to diffuse the tension. Okay, so point number one, when God's people pray, Things happen. He hears and answers, even if we can't. Okay, so let's bring this back to the abortion issue. So let's say we're fasting and praying for God to end abortion in America. How do we know in our prayers? There's thousands of things that happen where hearts are changed in these little girls that go down to the clinic. They're scared. They're terrified. They don't know what to do. They're being pressured by their boyfriend, whatever the issue is. And the Lord sends a grandma down there to just say, Honey, I don't know what your problem is, but I know Jesus is the answer for you. Why can't that be the answer to prayer, fasting? I think there, there's been legislative victories. There's been victories in, in the realm of public opinion. Can I tell you? When, when I was first getting stirred about this movement, it was always the older folks, gray hairs. Jeremiah likes to call it gray hairs. I'm going to think of some name for him. <laughs> the bald heads. Come on, dude. <laughs> call us the gray hairs. It was always the older generation that was against abortion. And if you, you took it down, you know, over 64, the percentage was really high. They're against abortion. And then you go down and it just levels out. And the youngest generation, the 18 to 35, whatever, that generation was always the most tolerant of abortion. Um, can I tell you that things have changed, that God is changing hearts? Here's, here's some recent polling Young adults were more likely than other age demographics to support, he's talking about the 18 to 35 range now, this is recent polling, to support a 20-week ban on abortion. The young adults are more likely than other age demographics to support investigation of Planned Parenthood. Adults under 40 were more likely to support a whole range of incremental pro-life laws, including waiting periods and parental involvement laws. Young adults are actually the age demographic most likely to oppose abortion as a legal option at all. That is phenomenal. That's phenomenal. The millennials have been affected by the prayers of the gray hairs. Come on. We showed, I used to have a poster that I walk around with. I got attacked over this a few times, but it, it, it was a blown up picture of an aborted baby like this is reality this is not some philosophy here there's real babies in there that's why the advent of ultrasound and of the medical technology has definitely helped the pro-life cause because you can't look at that and go that's not a baby that's not a baby sucking his thumb that's not a baby that doctors go into the womb and operate on them if they have some kind of issue with their heart. That's not a baby that's heart is beating and breathing and moving around and sucking his thumb and laughing. And when you put sweet stuff in the amniotic fluid, they drink twice as much. They do. God's answering a lot of prayers. 
We have not prayed in vain. We have not prayed. You will not pray in vain if you trust in the Lord and pray for what He desires. You cannot pray in vain if you pray in faith and pray according to His Word and His purpose. He hears and answers the prayers of His people. So if we're in this for the long haul, we have to decide that. I mean, everybody's going to decide that. Whether we're going to get stirred up for a service or two or three, and then we're going to basically go back to life as it was. Or are we going to take this on as a project from God's heart, and this requires prevailing prayer? You have to be convinced. Like, you won't pay the price if you're not convinced and if you're not connected to the heart of God. Does this matter? I say that it does. Um, so, my first point was that when we pray, things happen. My second point is this. God changes people's hearts and minds. I marvel at all the times in Scripture where you, you see God makes people do some of the craziest things because he just changes their mind and their heart. The Bible says in Proverbs 21 about the king, the leaders, that their heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord, and he does what? Anybody know Proverbs 21? One? He does what? He turns it whichever way he wants to. God is powerful and sovereign. He can change people's hearts. He can change their wills. Absolutely. When the children of Israel were getting ready to come out of Egypt in the Exodus, this amazes me. God said to Moses, tell um, your people, tell all the people, that when they're getting ready to leave, to go to the Egyptians in their houses and say, look, we're getting ready to leave. Give us all your gold and all your nice clothes and all that stuff. And God says, I'm going to give you favor with them, and they're going to give you all their stuff when you leave. I'm like, seriously? No, he changed their hearts. And the Bible says that they were loaded, laden with gold and silver and money and all the nice stuff because God gave favor and changed their hearts. He does that through prayer. That's our hope when we're praying for the lost, is it not? It is. This is Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, very famous. He said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Acts chapter 16, you know the story. Paul's preaching the gospel. He had a vision to come over in Macedonia and preach to us. He's by the river. There's a lady there who's a businesswoman. She's a seller of fine garments. Her name is Lydia. And the Bible says this about her. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. You go, well, there's people whose hearts are set against. Listen, I can tell you stories just from following this for so long. There's been lots of people numbers of them who ran abortion clinics, managed them, that the Lord completely, radically changed their life and saved them, and they came out, and now they're the strongest pro-life advocates we have in this country. Can I suggest to you, somebody was praying. Somebody was praying, and God heard and said, watch this. He doesn't just strike the paws off their horse with lightning 
and go, dude, do I have your attention now? Can you hear me now? He does that to abortionists. He does that to those who manage abortion as well. God changes hearts. And then this is my last point. You millennials will have to correct me if I'm wrong on my, um, the way that I say it. Because I'm fairly fluent in English, but I'm still learning millennial. <laughs> Here's my point number three. God is down for a good fight. He's down, right? We used to say he's up for it, right? But like we're, we're totally wrong, bro. We were upside down. Now he's down for it. Come on. God's down for a good fight. Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. Let me just tell you the story. Hezekiah's king in Jerusalem, the most powerful military force in the world were the Assyrians, and their king was Sennacherib. Sennacherib came and he attacked Judah, and he conquered all of the fortified cities in Judah except Jerusalem. So he basically had the whole place except for Jerusalem. So then he sends his messenger to Jerusalem. Hezekiah sends his guys out there to talk to him, and he's standing out there yelling in Hebrew so that he's going to scare the, the residents as well. He goes, look, you guys need to surrender right now. We've already conquered all the other cities. You see all these other countries that we've already conquered and subdued. You're not going to be able to resist. If you think that you're going to become an ally with Egypt and trust in them, he goes, that's going to be like leaning on a reed with your hand. It's just going to stick into your hand. It's not going to be able to support your weight. He goes, that's just a waste of time. Don't even think that. And don't let Hezekiah lie to you and tell you that your God is going to rescue you because we have conquered all of these other nations that had their gods and now all their treasuries from their gods are in our treasury. So don't believe a lie. You're doomed and there's nothing you can do about it. You just need to surrender now. If you do that, it'll be a lot better for you. You won't be killed. You won't be trapped in this city when we starve you out. He said, if you, if you resist us, you're going to be drinking your own urine and eating your own dung. That's what he said. So Hezekiah sends word to Isaiah, the prophet, and says, dude, we have a situation here. Isaiah sends back word from the Lord, and the Lord says, um, don't worry about him, because I'm going to send him way back to his country, because I'm going to put a rumor in his head, in his ear, that there's another country coming to attack him, and he's going to go back. That's exactly what happened. So the army departs, the spokesman for Sennacherib departs, but then they come back. And the spokesman for Sennacherib says, look, don't think just because we left that we've forgotten about you. We're coming back for you, and we're going to take over everything. And this is Isaiah chapter 37. Hezekiah takes the letter out. And he spreads it before the Lord. He doesn't go to Isaiah this time. He just takes it before the presence of the Lord. Isaiah 37, verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God 
You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. God, this is personal against you. Verse 18, truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have devastated all the countries and all their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. So they've destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from this hand, um, from this hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. How long did that prayer take? Anybody time it? I'm saying it's less than a minute. I'm saying it's less than a minute. Look at this verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And then skip down just for the sake of time to verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. And he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camps of the Assyrians. Why did this happen? Why did it happen? Why did God say, why did the prophets say that this happened? Because you have prayed. The most powerful military force on the earth has come against you and God with one angel wipes out 185,000 of their troops sends them back not only that if you read in verse 38 which I won't read all of it Sennacherib then is assassinated by two of his own sons God's down for a good fight he's down for it he's not intimidated by the voices of Sennacherib or his messenger He's down for a good fight. His question to his church is, who's down with me? Will you lift your voice to me in faith and in trust that I will do the impossible if you ask me? That I will change hearts. That I will work behind the scenes in the people's hearts and all of the thousands of details that we never see. Who's down with me? That's the, the Lord asking. I think we need a fresh wind in our sails as far as trusting God because subjects like this 
abortion can be wearisome. You, you feel it's, it's emotionally taxing and you get worn and this has been going on for a while and the issue is out of our hands as to whether it's going to be completely eradicated from our country. But here's what we know when we pray. God is working. And he works powerfully and he works miracles and he works in the smallest details that are unseen and will ever be unseen from us. And he's down for a good fight. He's not intimidated by the Sennacheribs of this earth. I think about the scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 a lot. To me, it's so powerful. I love the fact that it says over and over again, the lamb who was slain is in the center of the throne. I love it. Yes, Jesus, that's where you belong. You're in the center of the throne. You're in the center of the churches. You're in the center of everything. You are the center of the universe. And when the angel cries out and said, who's worthy to open, to take the scroll and open its seals? You know, there's none. And John said, I wept greatly. And they said to him, don't weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And he's worthy. Do you, you know, most all scholars that I've ever read believe that that scroll is basically the title deed to the history of the earth and of mankind. And only Jesus is worthy to open those seals. He has it in his hand. He has the history of our nation, of our lives of this church. He has the scroll and he's worthy to open the seals. He controls the destiny of nations. And he said to the weakest and most unfaithful church of the seven letters, the church in Laodicea, that was lukewarm. He said to the weakest, to the most failing believers of the seven churches when he wrote the letters in that book, to him who overcomes, he will sit with me on my throne and rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's a promise you're going to share the authority that I rule with. How? Why did you do that, Lord? Because you prayed. Because you prayed, Hezekiah. Because you prayed. I'm going to pray in just a minute. What I want to do is if the worship team can come up. I've got a twofold call that I want to put out. One is we have the prayer teams. Will the prayer teams please come forward? Staff, if you want to come up. So what I'd like to do is, if you have in your life long-term issues, you've been praying for a, a wayward child, you've been praying for a lost loved one for a long time, for years, and you have become weary, and you'd like somebody to help jumpstart that in you and pray with you, I invite you to come down. Or if you just want to come down and connect your heart to the heart of the Lord about this issue of abortion, and say, God, I for one, I'm going to lift my voice to you because my voice matters. You have a deposit of the authority of the Lord. 
in your life that Jesus has given to you when he rose from the dead. Here's the question. Here's the question. What are you going to do with it? I open up the altars. Come down. We've got prayer team up here. If you need prayer for anything or if you just want to come down, be at the altar. Come on down.